The following episode of the Nick podcast contains explicit language and spoilers. We highly recommend you watch the corresponding episode before listening. Hey everyone, welcome to the very first episode of the Nick Podcast. I'm Michael Begler. I'm Jack Amiel. And we're the writers and creators of Cinemax is the Nick. Each week we're going to be taking you behind the scenes of the latest episodes of our second season. You'll hear from us and various cast and crew about how the show evolves from a blank whiteboard into the final product that you see at home. Today, we're going to be recapping season one and diving into the premiere of uh, season two, which was entitled Ten Knots. And joining us for this is the Knicks' fine young surgeon, Bertram Chickering Jr., a.k.a. Bertie, played by Michael Angarano. Hello. Hello, Michael. Thank you for having me. Uh, We're going to refer to you as Angarano, I believe. Yes. Yes, because we have two Michaels and... There are a lot of Michaels involved in this production. There are. There are. And uh, since we didn't have a podcast for the first season, I thought we'd give some background on the filming of the first season of The Nick. Right. And I, I haven't seen it. <laughs> I, this is the first time hearing about it. <laughs> I, I have a question. What, you know, how, how did you guys essentially come up with the idea? It started with a parasite in my intestine. It's literally how it started. It started with me having a real uh, problem and trying to get to the bottom of it. And um, so I was going down these different roads of traditional medicine and and, um, alternative. And I was amazed at what science had figured out. And I was frustrated at what they still hadn't figured out. And that just got Jack and I thinking and talking because Jack knows all of my digestive woes over the years and um, I shared them with him. Mm. Yeah, the upshot of his digestive woes is really that I'm stronger than he is. (laughs) Um, I do not, I eat like the worst, Michael takes good care of himself, he eats all the right colored foods and everything and he eats in moderation and I never get sick. My, my digestive system is fine and quite honestly I look like the guy who when he has that sudden heart attack everybody goes, well, I mean look at him. So, right. you know, so it was sort of ironic to me. I was just glad it wasn't catching. But but it, it did get us talking about, like, what would we have done 100 years ago? Like, mm-hmm. what, what would the options be? I, I, I couldn't go on Google, you know, and, and, and get obsessed about, uh, you know, what my, what my issue is. Um, and so on a whim, we just bought a book off of eBay. We bought a medical textbook. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible. I mean, it really was just eye-opening as to, I mean, all those kind of like holy shit moments that are on the show come from those initial readings that we had of just, we, we are, you know, our jaws were dropping. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't look at all this new stuff, and we were going through all these different books. Michael had this medical book he'd gotten off eBay, and I had a bunch of um, books uh, I grabbed off Amazon, and we were just going through them, and we were sending stuff back and forth to each other. I think everybody's reaction when they when they first read the script is that, you know, the amount of research that had to go into the pilot. Was that your reaction? I, I, that was my reaction. It, you know, reading the pilot. People was, are saying. <laughs> reading, that's, that's something that I heard that the actors responded to was... <laughs> was the fact that when you read the pilot, it's so educational and it's so informative. Um, and, you know, you were able to cr- take all these, all these, you know, historic details and facts and, mm-hmm. and create a, like, you know, a narrative fictional story because these characters aren't real characters. They're based on 
real characters. Now, They're based on real people. Now, when you read it and uh, your agent sent it to you, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. did you say, oh, I... I really think I'm right for Birdie, or did you say like, "Oh man, it would be so cool to play Gallinger"? Or? Yeah, it was. It was sent to me um, because I had I had done a film with Soderbergh before called Haywire, right? And so it was sent to me uh, from my agent um, just as Soderbergh's next thing. This is the thing that he's doing. You know, there are several roles that you could be right for, um, and so when I read it. I my agent didn't didn't specifically tell me which role she thought I would be right for. And so when I spoke to her after I read it, I thought, yeah, obviously this is something I would I would be interested in. And she said, "What role did you respond to?" And I said, "Well, obviously the 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 25-year-old young surgeon." Right. And she goes, "Oh." And I said, "What why? What 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 other role could I have possibly been right for?" And she said, "Well, I thought the Irish immigrant Cleary, <laughs> <laughs> played by six foot five, two hundred and eighty pound Chris." Right. I said, "Well, it's Sullivan. A, I think it's a great role, but I mean, Soderbergh knows what I look like. <laughs> I don't think I would do be." You, right can you do an Irish accent? Um, you know, I I have done an Irish accent before. I don't think I could do as great a one. No, not as... not drunk in a bar. I'm right, right, right. The irony of that statement is that in our first call with Soderbergh. We talked about you for Birdie. When you read Birdie, did you like connect to him or did you feel like... I immediately felt that the only role that I could play on that show was Birdie. And right. that, you know, it, there were there were just so many opportunities. I mean, in the script there, in, in the pilot, you know, there's only a, an inkling as to what's going to happen mm-hmm. with Chickering. But I knew he was going to be somebody who... You know, had a lot of potential. Right. He was going to have a love interest in in Nurse Elkins. Mm-hmm. Um, he would have a lot of scenes with Thackeray because Thackeray was sort of a a mentor, and mm-hmm. um, Bertie was you know a, a young protege at some point. But I also just thought that Bertie was going to be the one, you know, so, the one nice guy on the show <laughs> in a, in a show filled with not a lot of nice people. Bertie's sort of the moral compass in a way. It's exactly who he is. He really is the the one. Who's sort of unalloyed, if you will. He's un, he's undamaged in a weird way, and he's this. He's you know noticeably shorter. He's noticeably younger. He's noticeably more innocent. Yet shorter, you mean? <laughs> you uh, Eric, Eric, shorter of temper. He's yeah. short, well, yes. shorter in experience. Right. Um, but what I love about him is, in the end, he's the strongest, and I I've always found that to be sort of a, a guiding north star for me. So you wait, let me let me ask. So you get you get Thackeray. Yeah. You get you get Algernon, all the characters start coming together. Then how long does the pilot take to write? Well, we I mean after we've researched it and and we broke it out, um, I think it took us a couple weeks to kind of outline it um, to get it to where we wanted it to be and you know, the way Jack and I write, we write very quickly because we're a sweatshop. You know, Jack writes at night, sends it to me. I open it up in the morning. Um, I edit what he did. And then you guys never on. write together? You guys Never. We used to. But we, you know, we grew to not only be comfortable writing on our own, but also trust the other one. So the pilot is written. And at one point, does Soderbergh come on board? Well, what happened was we wrote, um, not only did we write the pilot, 
but we also wanted people to understand what 1900 was. Right. Because when we would say 1900, people would say, what are you working on? And you'd be like, ah, this show, we think it's, you know, it takes place in 1900. They'd say, oh, like, um, uh, you know, Gangs of New York. And you'd be like, actually, Gangs of New York was during the Civil War, and it's like the mid to early 1860s. And they'd be like, oh, well, that's the same era. I'm like, not even remotely. And then people would say, well, so it's like Downton Abbey. I'm like, well, Downton Abbey started in 1912, but it really pushed into the 20s and 30s quickly. And so people would be like, so what is it? And you realize that you had to let people understand what the technology was, what the time was, what the social mores were. You're coming out of the Victorian era. A lookbook of some kind. Yeah, so we did a lookbook and we did it. So with, with every character in it and sort of we used old photos that we had been sending back and forth to each other and... Uh, we then did an essay of um, about six pages as to what the progressive era was, what 1900 was. And what we were really hoping was that it was eye candy for a director who would say, oh, wow, I, w- I want to shoot this. Right. And luckily it turned out to be that. And then we also had another document. Right. We had a, we had a, just like a seven-page treatment um, just about what we wanted to do, how we wanted to arc the season. You had an idea and, of the uh, yeah, season yeah. one. I, I love you guys said this to me at one point before, which is you know if you if if you had let everybody know like your representation know that you were writing this, you thought they would have said don't. Uh, absolutely, yeah. they would talk us out of it. Look, we had made this really lovely career of writing movies and 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 sort of family movies, romantic comedies, and we were known for that. We were mm-hmm. a brand. What was wonderful was that that Soderbergh, from the very outset, had absolutely, and for no reason really, I still don't understand how he did it, but he had enormous faith in our ability to deliver this. Um, I think probably even more than we did. Um, once he got involved and said, no, no, you guys are the writers. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Especially <laughs> after that first day that we spent with him breaking out the 10 episodes. Yeah, talk about that, because that, that's a great story, too. Is So you go in, you walk in with a pilot, like a, a loose outline or like a, like a yeah, pretty we have, definitive. Again, we, we, we flew to New York, and we were going to spend two days um, talking, talking the season, because we had about three months to, to get everything written. Uh, we started filming in August. Mm-hmm. Right. It was it was originally August. It got pushed into September. But still, like that's not a lot of time yeah. to, to break a season of TV, even if it's only 10 episodes. And so we, both Jack and I, thought like, okay, we'll go in. We'll, we'll sort of talk generally about like what we've come up with and, and the basic arcs. And then we'll sort of like start figuring out how to make it more detailed. And we walk into Soderbergh's office. And he's standing at a whiteboard and he is making 10 columns. And it's at that moment that Jack and I look at each other and just say, holy shit, like we have to break this with him and we have to do it in two days. Wow. And so it was, I think it was that moment where we both just like took that first step into his office and said, all right, this is it. Let's just do this. Mm-hmm. And we did it in one. So you wrote essentially season one of the Nick in three months. Yes. So you started in May, yeah. had the pilot. Yeah. And, and then, and then we, we broke it out, and then um, we brought on Stephen Katz. To, we fine-tuned the outline with Stephen Katz, who's, our, uh, who's the co-EP this year. And, um, and then I remember it was the end of June, so we started at the end of June. And by the beginning of August, we had all 10 done. And, I and think then, that, then we I were think, fine-tuning. I think that when we left Stephen's office, I mean, we had ideas pretty much for how everything was going to flow and we basically you know it would be a scene that say that would say like Cornelian Algernon and it would just be sort of that was the scene it was sort of like well yeah something that, with Cornelian yeah, Algernon exactly like they would kiss on. in that scene yeah or we would have a moment like 
Episode 7 just said The Riot. And so we left. It was a Thursday afternoon. Um, and Michael, I believe your dog was, was either ill or dying. Uh, no, it, we, we left on a Thursday afternoon and my dog was dead. <laughs> my yeah. dog died. The, we, got, we worked up Wednesday. Uh, Thursday morning, woke up. Um, my wife called me and said I had to put the dog down, which I knew was coming. Right. But um, it made for a really, really, really hard day for him. Yeah, um, and 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 I had to walk from the hotel to Doctor Burns's office and start looking at all his photographs. So Doctor Burns, the medical consultant, the medical yeah. show. yes. But it was so surreal to to do that. But that's yeah. But we well, so when we left Stevens, we sort of had an idea of everything, but there were still kind of moving pieces and everything, and and and. And there was nothing was was really beaten out at all. And Stephen said, "Okay, on Tuesday, I want to give HBO slash Cinemax the outline and let them know this is exactly what we want to do." I, I guess I just have a question as far as the writing goes. So you have the slug line, you have the outline. What were your reference points for the dialogue and, and the way these characters speak? It's it's hard to pinpoint. You know, I yeah. think that it just sort of is an organic process for the two of us that we are hearing voices in our head and we're trying to put them on paper and we're hearing slightly different things and then we sort of kind of mold it together. So if it's, so for the first scenes that we would be writing of Thackeray, you know, Jack would hear it one way and I would hear it slightly different and we would just sort of massage it and then we would finally, you know, we would come together and say like, okay, this is what it sounds like. But an, an important thing about this show in particular is that we made it a point to not make it sound period, to make it sound more contemporary. You definitely made a choice with the way you spoke as Birdie. Like I was, it was very distinct. Like there's mm-hmm. something that you you do to your voice, yeah. and like how did you kind of t- decide on that? That that was the biggest. That was that that was the the biggest thing for me because I um, you know you you read the script and. You do your own research. But for me, I found myself about two weeks out feeling really, really unprepared and scared and thinking, you know, I I, I, I don't know a lot about this person. And mm-hmm. so I, I, for the first time ever, I um, started to work with a dialect coach, this great woman named Liz Himmelstein, who worked, you know, on tons of great things. Um, and... It, it was then where I started to, you know, hear how Birdie sounded, and and and. Is it based on anything? Like did she base y- it y- on? Well, actually, there's there there were two there were two references. It, it, it's essentially the beginnings of 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 a casual New York accent, right. but a high class version of it. It's not British. It's definitely influenced by British, um, but the reference points were were guys like Gore Vidal. And, oh, that's interesting. And Freddie Prince, mm-hmm. you know, guys who talk like that and who really enjoy talking, and you know, who really stretch out sounds and right. you know, there's a certain you know delicacy in in their s's and right. c's and you know things like that. And so that's really where he started. What was your first scene that you shot? The first scene that I shot, um, where Gallinger and Bertie walk into uh, Thackeray's office. And are talking about the... Uh, the paper. The paper. Right. That was the first scene. Well, let's listen to that clip. Do you have a moment, Doctor? Uh, Birdie the Brave and the Goodnight Gallinger. All I want to hear is that it works and you got it solved. No, we're hopelessly lost. But we did find something. It's not good. But it might be. Concerns Edwards and the procedure he described. We can learn it with Edwards' help, but... 
just might be what we'd hoped. I love the idea that there's immediately this this rift that 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 Algernon showing up has changed something. Mm-hmm. And and we play a lot of different little pieces that we drip out through the season of mm-hmm. season one where you are you are maturing and you're maturing away from being being sort of the little brother. That, that that's something that I think we should talk about too, which is great. You know, as actors we get we we, we get all ten scripts before the show even starts filming, which is not common. Right. You know, most television shows you get an episode at a time exactly. and you don't really see where your character goes, but uh, we we got all ten scripts about three weeks before mm-hmm. filming started, and we shot it like that. We shot all ten episodes at the same time, right? Um, which is also not very common. Um, so on any given day, you could be shooting episode one, three, seven, ten, mm-hmm. um, and we did that a lot. We would you know shoot locations out, right? Like outside in front of the Nick, we'd, outside exterior yeah, right. Nick, or you know the Chickering House, right? Um, you would shoot all those scenes in a day or two, every scene from the show. Which, which really, you know, is a huge gift as an actor because you get to see so much of mm-hmm. what you guys have in mind, as opposed to other television shows where you're you, you're kind of just guessing. You've worked with Stephen before yeah. on Haywire. How was it coming on to the set of this? Was I mean, were you as nervous, or did you feel a sense of comfort, or did you? I, I was really happy to have worked with Steven the first time in general and I was very thrilled when he asked me back because there were about three movies that he did in the interim mm-hmm. that he didn't ask me back for right. and one was a male stripper film right. which I thought I would have been perfect for <laughs> um, but I uh, you know I was really happy to be asked back and I, I think this is a true statement for a lot of actors who work with Steven and working with him for a second time you feel like you have a little bit of a leg up because Steven's way of working is very specific and specific, and particularly with how he uh, works with actors because he doesn't really give you a lot of direction. And if he does give you direction, it's not it's it's not exactly, you know, character driven, motivational, mm-hmm. emotional direction. It's it's very technical. It's where do you put your eyes when you when you say this? It's you know, it's not a lot. Getting into season 2, did you still did you feel any better walking onto that set for the first time? Yeah, I mean, did you, you I I did you I feel more comfortable. And- I I think everybody felt so much more comfortable and I think it was a mixture of, you know, being in sync with Soderbergh, um, feeling more settled in their characters. You know, you guys were essentially having, you know, writing for us. You spent a whole, you know, six months writing, not only for the characters, but also for the actors. So you're playing to our strengths. Mm-hmm. I think I think season two is is just stronger and, and, and more confident on everybody's part. And, I you know, I think people, um, once they realize that, you know, how how liberated they were and how much freedom that Soderbergh is actually giving them. I I think that it allows them to to experiment on the first take a little bit more. And so I, I, I think everybody, you know, is just a little bit more in sync. Well now let's jump into season two. Let's let's talk about it. Um, uh, the first episode, Ten Knots, just aired and um, just a quick recap of I mean so much happens in this first episode you know we start with the letter from lucy to to john kind of giving what's been happening because this is about a month later mm-hmm. you know it's not a lot of time has, has passed between uh, season one and season two so thackeray is still in rehab and and um you know lucy is obviously still so in love with him and but we we find john poor john thackeray at Cromarty, and he's he's doing surgeries in his room for the for the sake of getting more heroin, you know, we find that Harriet's in jail and Cleary's trying to get her out. 
We've got Cornelia in San Francisco. We've got Algernon with his eye. He has this um, detached retina. Uh, we've got Gallinger, who's pulled his wife, Eleanor, away from Dr. Cotton. And now, as we saw her, she is looking very frail. And her sister, Dorothy, is there to take care of her. We've got Bertie, who has been working hard with Algernon, who is the... Uh, the now acting chief of surgery, uh, Bertie, we see is um, still resentful of, of not only Thackeray, but of Lucy and uh, Gallinger coming back to the hospital and um, finding out that Algernon uh, is the acting chief and he's not going to put up with it. So he's going to do what he needs to do and he's going to get Thackeray back there the only way he can think of and that's to get him out of that, that awful Cromartie and put him on a boat and clean them up. Clean them up, and which is based on an actual. Is event. it? I, yeah. that, that's so interesting. I was just going to say, out of you know, out of out of all the devices that you could use, you choose you choose a sailboat. Uh, you know, I mean, so it's well, based it's, on the, it's the most super waspy, first of all, <laughs> thing you could do, and that's Gallinger. Um, and you know, it, nothing says He's played by the nicest man of all time. Of all time, just half, the half least racist, the least racist, the best guy in the world, Eric Johnson, the sweetest human being of all time. He's yeah. He's like he's such a good dad, and he's a great husband. But just a, great hair, so handsome, he's, tall. He's upsettingly handsome and yeah. Canadian. Uh, right. I know exactly. So he he doesn't even know how to be hateful. Like it's not even in his DNA. Not one hateful bone in his body. And um, but it was so super waspy. This idea of the sailboat. This idea of 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 the ultimate symbol of his sort of entitlement and his and his you know American establishment. I think it was just a great a great place to do it. But there was a story that I think it was uh, Welch, who was a doctor at Hopkins, who tried to clean up a guy named Halstead, who is, who is the one of the guys on, on whom Thackeray is based. And Halstead was, a, was an absolutely hopeless cocaine and then heroin addict, actually morphine, morphine. addict. And as a result, uh, he needed to get him away, get him out. And he literally brought him out on a sailboat. And it, at, one, at one point, uh, Halstead was so in dire need of drugs that he started tearing apart the inside of the boat. Now, there was nothing there. There was no drug there for him, but the man... I thought there was a medicine cabinet that yeah. he got into. And there was nothing, but there was nothing of value, you know, he, you know, iodine. And we actually know. had a version of that in the... Um, oh, where he... In, yeah, he... Sneaks a little iodine? Well, he... he there was there was like a a medicine cabinet down in the hull of the ship, and he kicks it down, and he ends up cutting open his leg, and... And so is this... Is this... Was, did you guys get this from Genius on the Edge? Is that in the book, or is that? Yeah, another? that was in Genius on the Edge. So, do you like to you take that down and you store it in in your? In, oh yeah, in your, absolutely. In, you, know, oh, yeah. you put it in your back pocket. And we, you're like, we, season two starts on the yeah. Cell, I mean, yeah. we held it in our pocket for almost two a year oh, yeah. and a half, two years. Uh, uh, we there's other things that we from season two that aren't in that book, but just a lot of stuff that we we had just done the research and just held and said we know that we're, we're going to take this. The hard part is there's probably. 25,000 facts and we've probably used 400 right. and the idea is that you just you can't you can't shoehorn them in you can't have somebody stand up and go well let me tell you a story about a man named you know engineer Bill who built this bridge over here you can't do that you have to you have to it has to be natural it has to be naturally occurring it has to be real and you can't just shoehorn facts in but and, there's so many fortuitous things like um, you know we knew that Cornelia was going to be in San Francisco in the beginning of season two, 
it's like, well, what what can we do with her? And it's like, well, hey, look, the bubonic plague was going on. <laughs> right. Boy. So, I mean, there were those great moments where we just say, okay, we're just, we can just play to that. I mean, and then there's other things where we try to take something and then push it into what we're doing. You know, certain, certain surgeries, for example, that we felt were thematic. And, um, and so we say, okay, how do we take this surgery and then build, build the story around it? You know, we had so many great surgeries in season one. And it's like, right, right. okay, how are we going to top that? And, um, uh, I mean, I, you know, I mean, we see right away that we have some interesting surgeries uh, in the first episode. The the nose that that Thackeray is working on is definitely going to, you know, that that sets us up beautifully. And then later on in the episode with you and Dr. Mays um, is is so great, um, is so revolting. So and revolting. It, <laughs> and it's such a great scene. But I want to hear from you, like playing that scene and how did that feel? I mean, because now this is like the first surgery where you're 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 actually the the the, the top surgeon in the surgery mm-hmm. and you know for birdie that's a big that's a big deal that's a big leap yeah it is and i i think he's uh, finding himself to be more competent as a surgeon and i think he's you know growing in confidence but i mean there's always there's always the moment before these surgeries cuz you know especially how soderberg shoots it and you know just how how great these prosthetics are they're so dynamic mm-hmm. Filming these surgeries is kind of like you know filming a stunt, where right. there are so many things that have to go right for the scene to work. Okay, let's listen to that exact clip. Perhaps I'll begin. Nurse knife. <clears throat> I will dissect down to the bone and see how much pus is in there. Did when you when you um when you rehearsed? I I just can't remember. Did Justin Justin Raleigh, the 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 mm-hmm. visual effects visual effects guy, and built all the incredible prosthetics? Um, did he show you how the pus would come out? No, I mean he just told me this is actually a funny story about that because you know what I what I was very accustomed to in season one was you know all of the prosthetics, the the placenta previa, um, any other surgery that we did, you know it's that the prosthetics are added on to an actor, and so you're dealing with, you know, a real person under there who's, you know, lying on a slab for 10 hours. And so, you know, when you, when you do an incision or when you, when you, you suture, you kind of have to be wary of where the prosthetic ends and the person begins. Mm-hmm. And Justin was like, you know, you have a, you have a good inch and a half of, of, of room there to make the incision down to the bone, which I have to do, which I, I vocalize that I have to do. And I, so I was worried for the actor. I, I kept thinking, you know, when, do, where's his leg? Where am I, where, where's to... Too far. deep to go. <laughs> exactly. And so nobody gave me a specific answer. And I realized after that you guys cast a one-legged actor. Yeah. I, I had no idea. <laughs> I totally forgot that. I had no idea <laughs> that I he I was looking at a fake leg this entire time. <laughs> you know, so it funny. just goes to say how, how great the prosthetics are on the show. That I, I I was completely clueless. That I was literally right. looking at it. I was touching it. I was feeling it. I was worried about it. And nobody came up to me and said, you know, inform me that the the actor only had one leg. Um, and he couldn't been couldn't have been more gracious about it afterwards. But I, I yeah, you know, these surgeries they right before right before you you start, you definitely get a surge of adrenaline because you know that. You know, there's only one or two of these prosthetics right. around, and the way Stephen Stephen shoots it, 
Um, you know, the choreography is is very specific, and you have to get it right. You have to make the real incision. Mm-hmm. You know, you you really have to do that. Was so, the pus flowing from underneath? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That pus was very worrying. Yeah. Beforehand, I, I wasn't sure what it was going to look like. You know, we we had a screening a couple of days ago, which was really fun because it was the first time that I had watched the show with an audience in a in a in a theater in a, in a theater, and people to hear people's reactions to the surgeries. I mean, do you guys? Ever, you know, have um, when you when you write a surgery? Do you ever just include it in there just because you know it's going to be gross, <laughs> or no, no because it, it's no. going to be particularly no, you know, disconcerting? No, to see. what the reason the gross part, and I, I, I always want to clarify this for people: the the gross part is that all surgery is kind of gross, mm-hmm. and what we've done is right now, you know. In in modern in the modern era, you know we've we've found a way to staunch fl- blood flows and 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 put a nice white sheet over it and and you just have the surgical field and everything is sort of neat and tidy and clean. And back then it wasn't like that. People, it, it was bloody and it was brutal. And that the doctors were looking at it, you know there there aren't little arrows pointing to everything and saying this is a duodenum, this is a hepatic duct. It, it, it's a it's this giant jumble of guts and. And blood vessels, and these doctors are just trying to figure it out. That being said, I think we all knew that a surgery that takes place in episode two of this season is going to be hard for people. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And that is very hard. Well, Soderbergh says, you know, he's looking for like a 50% blanche rate. Like mm-hmm. people just having to look away. The, the, the thing we always hear is, um, uh, I had to look away, but I didn't want to stop watching. Mm-hmm. One thing that we haven't touched on is um, is the new Nick, that they're going to be building this uh, new hospital uptown that at, at the end of season one where we left it is that they were going to shutter the old one and they have this property um, on, I believe it's the Upper East Side, we're saying. Yeah, we're saying essentially um, Upper East on Fifth Avenue. Um, and they're going to be building it and we see the, the big groundbreaking ceremony um, w- with all the major parties and this this building of it is going to be sort of a going on in the background throughout the entire season. Yeah, I think for us, one of the things about the groundbreaking that was great was that we could bring, the, bring everyone back together. What we, I think what we really liked about it was that it, it, it's our launching point. It's the launching point for season two in a lot of ways, and there's all these new things happening, and, and then there's this moment where Henry says, look, we're going to have to take our time, and we're going to get you where you want to go, Algernon, but he can't help himself, and he brings Algernon into this picture this picture that's going to be for posterity of this is the new Nick. And it's, once again, we're, we're juxtaposing this sort of new, new guard against the old guard. And that was really sort of thematically, you know, a way to launch us into what we want to do for really the season. And with that, that will wrap up this uh, first podcast of the Nick. Uh, I want to thank uh, my co-host Jack Emil and Michael Angarano. Uh, this podcast was produced today by Barry Finkel with production help from Emily Rubin. Make sure to watch the second episode entitled Your No Rose next Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern on Cinemax before tuning in to hear the inside scoop. Next week we're going to be dissecting an eyeball with Peter Gelfman and Michael Jortner who are the prop masters of the show. They are incredibly talented and it's going to be a really interesting discussion. So with that, I'm Michael Begler. And I'm Jack Amiel. And I'm Michael Angarano. And thanks for listening.